Thank you, Travis. Good morning. Now listen, I'm going to need some crowd interaction here in a little bit, so I'm going to need you to be more engaged in that. Good morning. All right, that's better. Uh, if you have your Bibles this morning, keep those open to John chapter 14, which Travis just read for you. Um, if you don't have a Bible with you, there's a blue one in front of you. And uh, if you're like, I don't know how to get to John 14, there's this thing called a table of contents in the start, and it's really helpful, and so that'll help you get there. But John chapter 14, we want you, I want you to have a Bible in hand, either on your smartphone or in your person, because we need you to know that, that we are a Bible church. Um, and so we're going to look at John 14 this morning. We're also going to jump around a lot, and so every time we do, we're going to throw those scriptures on the screen for you, so you can always see uh, that what we're bringing you this morning isn't our opinion, which is ultimately irrelevant, but it's, it's truth from the Word of God. And so that's important to us, and it's important for you uh, to gauge that. And so as you're finding your way to John 14, just join me in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you uh, just for the immense possibility of this morning. God, we thank you for uh, just the awesome chance to celebrate uh, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that it is true, that it is real, and that the hope that it provides is unchanging. And so, God, as we do that, Lord, as we open your word, as we look to it, I, I just pray that around this room you would help us all to understand uh, even more clearly, even a deeper level than we walked in, just who Jesus is, just what he offers us, just what he did for us, just what he meant when he made this ridiculous claim. And, God, what, what it means that he has defeated death. And so we invite him in here, Lord. We invite your presence into this time. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in the 90s, there was a game show that took America by storm. Now, game shows had been on TV for some time, but, but few of them had actually been put on in prime time. But, the, but ABC took a risk and they scheduled Who Wants to Be a Millionaire in the evenings against the most popular shows on the other networks. And the show, which was hosted by Regis Philbin, became a monster hit. And so before long, ABC was filming all the episodes they could, and they, it was kind of like they do what NBC does now in the summer with The Voice, where it seems like every time you turn on NBC, it's The Voice, right? Every time you turn on ABC, it was Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? And it was a trivia show where contestants had to answer questions, and the more questions they got right, the more money they would win. And as everyone watched, everyone wondered if anyone would get enough questions right to actually get to that peak to win the million dollars. And so this sort of newness, this, 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 this mystery to it led to record high ratings. It became the number one show in America. In the late 90s, I was in high school, and I remember uh, sitting down with my family at night and watching. We all wanted to see who's, who can win the million dollars. And I think a big part of the show's success was just it was very good at building tension. Right? Because one of the ways they set it up was that if you got a question wrong, you didn't get to take home all the money you'd won to that point. You'd have to slide down to a much, much lower amount. You could lose almost everything. And so for each question, the contestant had three options. They could walk away and not even answer at all, and they could take home what they had won. Or they could take the risk. Right? They could be, feel confident they have the question right, and if they answer the question, they get it wrong, they lose a huge portion of what they've already won. Or if they get it right, they're one step closer to a million dollars. And one of the trademarks of the show was a really brilliant strategy by its host at just sort of maximizing the nervousness, because whenever a contestant would give an answer, Regis would look them in the eye and say, is that your final answer? Right? And here's what he meant. There's an awful lot riding on this, right? You're, you're stepping out there and you're declaring your answer. You're either getting one step closer to $1 million or you're losing almost everything. And by the way, there's an entire nation of people watching you. 
And so you're banking everything on this answer. So let me ask you, is that really your final answer? Well, leading up to Easter, leading up to today, right, we here at FBN this year decided to spend three weeks looking at this incredible claim that Jesus made in John 14, 6 that Travis just read for you. Where Jesus says this, I am the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father except through me. And that one statement by Jesus, above all the rest, has become the most controversial thing he ever said in our day and age. And I want to make sure that we understand that Jesus was never afraid of saying something controversial. For instance, when he went to the cross, when he was beaten and whipped and nailed to a cross in a brutal and terrifying execution, there was actually an entire crowd of people there cheering his destruction. That doesn't happen if you're somebody who plays it safe all the time. And so just off the start, let's be certain that this image we've created of Jesus, of this blue-eyed, curly-haired, meek man who would never correct anyone, isn't the image that's actually in your head this morning. Because he is the real authority, the ultimate authority of the universe. And he's only capable of speaking truth and standing for what is right. And when you do those things, human beings will always hate you. All of the controversy in this claim by Jesus comes when people begin to understand the exclusivity of it. And so from the start, I want, it, I want us all to be on the same page. We're not gonna hide from that this morning. Let's just be perfectly clear. Let's put all the cards on the table. In John chapter 14, Jesus is talking about heaven. It's why if you look at verse one, he tells his disciples not to let their hearts be troubled. In verses two through four, he tells them heaven is a real place and he's going to prepare it for them and he's gonna come back and bring them there. And so in verse six, when Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father except through me, he's saying a lot of things, but the clearest and most undeniable thing he's saying is I'm the only way to heaven. And it's right there, right, that people, a lot of people decide, you know, I don't want this anymore. And for good reasons, if we're honest, right? because it begs really good questions. Like, well, what about really devoted, good followers of other faiths? What about people who are just decent, good people? But they aren't certain they believe the stories about Jesus. What about people who were harmed or hurt by Christians or churches who did a terrible job of representing Jesus? And so their remedy was they're just going to try to have their own relationship with God apart from Jesus. And by the way, if Jesus is this humble, loving, amazing guy everyone says he is, it sure doesn't sound loving to say, believe in me or you can't go to heaven, does it? Well, it's because of those questions. It's because of that resistance. Also because of people who would just roll their eyes at this claim and not even consider it again that we've taken three weeks looking at this. And this has been the point. If what Jesus says in John 14, 6 is true, then our response to him carries really significant weight. If what he says is true, then all that matters ultimately is what we do with Jesus. If what he says is true, then he is the difference between life and death, between purpose and despair, and between heaven and hell. And so for all who do not give this claim even a second thought, for all who dismiss it because it feels exclusive, for all who won't accept it because at face value there's some part of it you don't like or doesn't feel right to you, we've been wanting to say to you, is that really your final answer? Because there's a whole lot riding on this. Won't you, even for just a few minutes this morning, take a longer, closer look? Won't you? I mean, you're already here. Just consider what Jesus is really saying. And we're praying that you will see this claim in a whole new light. Because what do you have to lose? Two weeks ago, we looked at how Jesus is the way. Last week, Adam unpacked for us how Jesus is the truth. If you missed those and you're interested in hearing them, we've made those available to you on our website through a podcast. If you're like, I don't know what a website or podcast is, come talk to me afterwards, all right? But today, 
I want us to focus on the third aspect of this claim, where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so here's what we're going to unpack from Jesus today, where he says, I am the life. Now, what the heck does that mean? I mean, it's a pretty open-ended statement, right? So to help us understand this, what we need to know is that this was something that Jesus talked about a lot. He just kept talking about life. For instance, this, this, where we get this verse, John, the book of John was written originally in Greek. And the Greek word that we translate life there in John 14, 6 is the Greek word zoe. And it is the, third time, the 30th time that we find this word in the book of John already. And so in just over 13 chapters, in 13 chapters and 6 verses, we've, we've, this word has been used 30 times already in the, ver, in the book of John. And the vast majority of those has been Jesus speaking. But the funny thing is that when Jesus kept talking about life, it becomes apparent that he sees it differently than you and I do. Okay, so help, to help us understand this, we're going to get some interaction this morning. Just by show of hands, I'm going to need you guys to interact with me here. Raise your hands in here this morning if you are actually physically alive. We've got paramedics standing by if I don't see any hands go up. All right, I think we're good. There's no dead people here. Now, here's the groundbreaking truth. It was the same thing with Jesus' crowds. It's shocking, isn't it? Right? That, that Jesus, when Jesus talked, he actually talked to live people, to living people. They had breath in their lungs, their brain was functioning, their heart was pumping, but none of that stopped him from keeping, he just kept offering them life again and again and again. And this is where I feel like his disciples get a bad rap. See, often in churches, right, disciples are kind of laughed at, they're mocked, uh, they're, they're the butt of jokes for how clueless they are, how confused they are all throughout most of the Gospels. In fact, they even, they even know it. In, in John chapter 16, a couple of chapters, they'll say to Jesus, finally, Jesus, this is after three years with him, you said something we can understand, right? But you see, Jesus, like all good teachers, he didn't mind the tension, he didn't mind them being uncomfortable. He didn't even mind them being confused because he would use it to bring them to further understanding rather than always to bring things down to the level right at the first time. And so their confusion was part of his design and brilliancy as a teacher. But, but at least give them this. If you were them, you would have been confused too. You've given your life to follow this teacher, this rabbi, and you're listening to Jesus speak to a bunch of people who are alive and his big selling point, his big thrust is, guess what? I can give you life. Part of you would want to go up and say, hey, hey uh, Jesus, there ain't no dead people here. I mean, do we have anything else for them? You have another, you have, I mean, that's your big selling point. I'm not sure it's going to sell, right? Because this is like offering water to the ocean. This is like offering sand to the desert. It's like offering arrogance and smugness to St. Louis Cardinals fans. They've already got it, right? You know, it's set up on a tee for me. You know I'm going to take that, right? And now I'm going to win the whole crowd back to me in Indiana. This is like offering the New England Patriots a new way to cheat. Actually, that analogy doesn't work because they'd actually take that and then they'd use it and run with it, right? But this never deterred Jesus. Okay, he just kept offering, the, come to me and I'll give you life. But if you're listening or today, if you keep reading, his meaning begins to clarify. For instance, Matthew 7, this is one of the things Jesus said He's looking at a crowd, he says, enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Did you hear that? Small is the gate, narrow is the road that leads to life, but only a few find it. You see, Jesus is not talking about being born, not physically. In John chapter 3, Jesus talks about our need as humans to be born again. 
So it doesn't take long to discover that whenever Jesus talks about life, what he's talking about is actually something better, something beyond what we experience here. And let me ask you, how good does that sound? And if that doesn't sound good to you, then I'm sorry, you just haven't been paying attention. Because it turns out that Jesus knows better than we do something that we spend our entire lives trying to hide from. And when he claims to be the life, when he offers humans life, he's not offering us some short-term, temporary, limited life that's marked by pain and struggle and has an expiration date. Mark Twain, the famous author, okay, later in his life, he came to a very realistic conclusion. Okay, I know it's Easter, this is going to be a downer, but I want to read it for you. Here's what Twain writes. He writes, a myriad of men are born. They labor and sweat and struggle for bread. They squabble and scold and fight. They scramble for little mean advantages over each other. And then age creeps upon them. And infirmities follow. Shames and humiliations bring down their prides and their vanities. Those they love are taken from them and the joy of life is turned to aching grief. And the burden of pain, care, misery grows heavier year by year. And then it comes at last. The only unpoisoned gift the earth ever had for them and they vanish from a world which they were of no consequence, a world that will lament them for a day and forget them forever. And then another myriad of men comes and takes their place and copies all they did and goes along the same profitless road and vanishes just as the ones before them. You know what? Call him a skeptic. Say that was unnecessarily dark. Say Mark Twain was bitter. Okay, I'll give you that one. But outside of Jesus, tell me where he's wrong. Outside of Jesus, tell me what he got wrong. Because the reality is, what, that is why Jesus looked at the human race and said, man, what I'm seeing, this isn't life at all. To merely exist, right? To struggle, to experience pain and loss, to have everything that you've worked for and everything that you built on be impossible for you to enjoy after you're dead. That isn't life, that's already death. And Jesus has no interest in death. Death already had too great a hold on humanity. That's how Sigmund Freud puts it, the famous psychologist. Sounded an awful lot like Twain. He writes, and finally, there is the painful riddle of death for which no remedy at all has yet been found, nor will there probably ever be. Isaiah 25 actually agrees with them, the Bible. The Bible calls death the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. And it is, isn't it? Death is the great equalizer of the human race. It doesn't matter your origin, your race, or your nationality. It doesn't matter your wealth. It doesn't matter how successful you are or how, how many failures you've had, your fame or anonymity. It's the sheet that covers all nations. And what Jesus has zero interest in offering you is a brief passing existence that will ultimately end in death. You've already got that. And so the way Jesus sees it, you're already dead. And before you scoff at that, just take a look around. Do you notice at the start of John 14, the very first thing that Jesus tells his disciples in verse 1 is, do not let your hearts be troubled. And do you know why he had to say that? Because their hearts were troubled. John chapter 13 through 16 is all one conversation on one night between Jesus and his disciples. And in this conversation, he tells them that one of them would betray him, that he would be handed over and killed, that Peter would disown him, that they all would abandon him. He goes on to tell them this, that the world is going to hate them. And then he starts telling them their future. He says, some of your own people, some of the Jews, will one day arrest you and kill you and think that they're doing good when they do so. And then he tells them that what their days will be marked by is grieving, weeping, and mourning. And do you know why? Because they will live life in this world. 
Scientists have recently started researching animals that live way longer than human beings because the idea is maybe we can take some of their DNA, maybe we can take something from them that extend the lifespan of humans. And so what they found is that there's a Greenland shark that they think can live up to 400 years. The Galapagos turtle can have a lifespan of up to 200 years. These are two oldest living animals on the planet. It's incredible. The oldest living turtle right now is the Galapagos turtle. He's 184 years old. They've named him Jonathan. But you know what's going to happen to Johnny? He's going to die. Spoiler alert. And pretty soon, based on his lifespan. And so will that shark, because that's the reality of our existence. We can study it, we can fight it, and we can change it. Because you see, human beings have structured our lives around ignoring the one certainty of our existence. We have life coaches. We have people make, make money in the role of life coach. We plan for retirement, we plan for college, we plan for next week, but we don't want to think about the one thing that we're all guaranteed to face. We have a cereal called life. Can you imagine eating a bowl of death? If you've had gas station sushi, you've come close, all right? We have life insurance, but what has to happen for you for the policy to kick in? You have to die. And it's not that Jesus didn't understand this. Who wants to sit around and think about death, right? You're probably all bummed out right now. Who wants to wallow in self-pity and depression? That's why Jesus doesn't tell you to, to think about death and be overwhelmed by it. He offers you life in its place. And in the book of Ephesians, we see this laid out really clearly for us to understand Jesus' offer. So I'm going to read that to you now. Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 1, says this. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Now I want to leave that up on the screen for you for a bit. Because there's a lot of words there, a lot of spiritual words, not words that we use uh, talk about everyday life. But there's three main points that I want you to see from those verses. The first one we get from verse 1, where it tells us that we are dead in our sins. This is why Jesus Christ looked at crowds of people who had breath in their lungs and their heart was pumping blood. And he said, guess what? I need to offer you life. Because he knew spiritually they were dead. And because of that, they would one day die physically. And that's not the fate he wanted for them. Second thing we get is from verse 3, that the evidence, the Bible says the evidence of our death is our constant focus on ourselves. We're told there in the Bible that in our death, what we do is we live to gratify the cravings of our own flesh and, and the following of our own desires and thoughts. This is simply undeniable. I'm not proud of it, but I am a selfish person. For instance, do you know what I most want to do? Well, what I want to do. That logic works, right? And even, even the good and charitable things I do, there's a, there's a darkness of, of doing them for my own good feeling to be seen by others. And apart from Jesus, this is my fate all my life. I'm going to get mine and that's it. And those who have Jesus still have to fight this urge day after day. It never fully leaves you. And the Bible tells us here that is the mark of sin. It's the mark of death, which brings us to point number three. Because of this sin, because of this selfishness, what we deserve is wrath. This is at least comfortable with three really uncomfortable points. And here's why. We all know that there's something wrong with the world, don't we? Right? All we got to do is watch the news. All you have to do is drive by a hospital or cemetery. Forget that. All you have to do is go to Walmart this afternoon and watch people interact with each other. 
You're going to know there's something wrong with the world. It's easy to see, if you study our history, that for all our existence, we've never once overcome the problem of racism. As long as human beings have existed, we've never evolved past humans taking advantage of one another. For all of our history, there's been some group that's been enslaved, another that's been oppressed, another that's brutalized. We are never at peace, never. So it's super easy to look at all that and say, well, there's a problem with this world. We just assume that the problem is out there. It's someone else's fault. Right? If you're a Democrat, it's the Republicans' fault. If you're a Republican, it's the Democrats' fault. Or if you're, you're religious, it must be God's fault because he's big enough and smart enough to just fix it already. But we never consider the problem. We never consider that the problem is in here. The problem with the world is me. And the Bible reveals this to me by not only uncovering the reality of sin, but directly telling me about the sin that exists within me. And far too often when we hear that word sin, we just roll our eyes. Because we have this notion that what the Bible is is a book with just a bunch of rules. And man, we'd just be better off without those rules, wouldn't we? Just don't tell me that I can't do whatever I want with my body or someone else's. Just don't tell me what I can ingest or can't. Just don't tell me what to do or to consume or leave alone. Just, just don't tell me those things. And I have levels of freedom. And without all that guilt, that's what many people believe. And this is, this is ingrained in younger people. Travis, who leads our middle school ministry, right, was having lunch this week with some sixth graders at the local middle school. And they asked him what he did for a living. So he told him, I'm, I'm the youth pastor over here. And one of the girls heard that. This is what she said. She goes, oh, I believe in God. And I love God, but I'm, I'm not a Christian. And she continued, do you know why I'm not a Christian? Because Christians, you know, they don't cuss. And they don't tell bad jokes. And they don't drink. And they, they, don't, they, don't, they don't misbehave in class. They don't do anything like that. And one of the students with her said, you do that stuff all the time. Now let me ask you, is, is any of that true? Does the Bible teach any of that? Well, let me clear something up for you first. If, if you're a guest in here today, if, you, if you're not used to being here, first off, we're, we're glad you're here, but there's something you must know. You are certain, you're currently sitting in a room full of people, and all of us are sinners. The guy talking to you right now, big sinner. Just ask my wife. So our hope this morning is not that we follow a bunch of rules. This place does not exist to just throw guilt on top of your life. We exist to tell you about Jesus, the one who can give you life. And the Bible is very clear that all of us, we are all stained by sin, and that has some real and dire consequences. Sin is real and exists deep within me and exists deep within you. Sin is when I give my devotion to something that isn't worthy of it. It's the man who leaves too early to go to the office and stays late, sacrificing his relationship with his wife and his children, all in the name of climbing some corporate ladder or his definition of success. Sin is the woman who just keeps throwing more and more money at her gambling addiction, wiping herself out completely, chasing a thrill that isn't coming for her. Sin is the man who gets up in the middle of the night and looks at pornographic images on his computer, damaging his marriage and killing his soul. Sin is the person who keeps looking to a substance to provide freedom, to provide a release, to provide escape from the pain of reality. Only true freedom never comes and slavery is in its place. Sin is the part of me that causes me to be selfish. Sin is the part of me that causes me to hurt the people I love. Sin is the part of me that alters or changes stories to make myself sound better in them. Sin is the part of me that responds in apathy to hunger and suffering around the world, yet still believing the whole time that I'm a generous and caring person. 
See, sin is real, and it is an outright affront to a holy God. And that word holy means perfect. It means set apart. It means different. It means that by his nature, God cannot tolerate sin. And by the way, why would he? It is sin that has caused all the oppression that exists in the world. It's sin that has marred creation. And so the results of human sin, what sin has brought forth is illness and divorce and despair, abuse, crime, war, hunger, slavery, broken relationships, abused women and children, lives snuffed out too early. And we want God to observe all that and see what sin does and look at us as sinners and go, ah, oh, it's okay, just as long as you try to be a good person. It doesn't make any sense. Which is why in the Bible, God tells us in the book of Ephesians that we stand deserving of wrath. That what I deserve, because I am guilty, what I owe is for the wrath of God to come down on me. Because I'm implicit. Because the problem with the world is me. But this is what makes Jesus' claim to be the life so astounding. Look at what he said in John chapter 5. He said, very truly, I tell you, Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. Jesus is telling us there how he is the life, that if we hear his words, which means we listen to his claims and we believe God, we believe what God has told us about Jesus, then we get eternal life. We actually pass, Jesus says, from death to life, which sounds way too easy, right? It's just too clean. We've got this gigantic problem of sin and it's caused all the problems that we face in the world. It's the reason that we're surrounded by death. Sin is the reason that we ourselves will die. And Jesus comes along and he strolls up and he says, believe in me, you won't have to worry about any of that stuff anymore. You're good. Because you've passed from death to life. Well, it is that simple, but it isn't that easy. Because the great irony in Jesus' claim to be life is this, that in order to buy us life, in order to offer us real, lasting, true life forever, Jesus is the one who had to die. That in order to defeat death, Jesus had to experience death. It's why he left heaven and came here. It's why he lived the only perfect and sinless life that has ever been lived so that he could be our substitute, so that he could step into our place, so that he could absorb our sin onto his body, paying our price. Do you remember in Ephesians where we read that we all deserve God's wrath? That's not something the holy God forgets. And so our two choices are this. We either experience that wrath fully by spending an eternity in hell or someone can step into our place and take hell for us. And that's what Jesus Christ did on the cross. Romans chapter 5 verses 8 tells us this, that God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, hear that language, Christ died for us before we cleaned up, before we were even sorry, before we made amends, before we ever tried to be good or religious, while we were sinners, while we were deserving of wrath, Jesus stepped in and died for us. Muhammad Ali was fighting, uh, fought George Foreman in a boxing match that they named the Rumble in the Jungle in 1974. Ali was already the champion but George Foreman was an up-and-coming uh, young boxer. He's one of the most formidable boxers in the world. This is before he made his grills, by the way, okay? He was actually a boxer first. He punched, and he punched with a force that few people had ever seen. No one would again until Mike Tyson comes along. And so approaching the fight, training for the fight, Ali was old enough and wide enough to know that he stood no chance at all. Even though he's the champ, he stood no chance at all if he just got into a punching match with Foreman. 
And so he used what he called after the match, his rope-a-dope strategy. So what happened is when the match began, Ali moved over to the ropes and he took a defensive position. He offered very few punches and he just positioned himself to just absorb the repeated blows by Foreman in a way that wouldn't get him knocked out. Never offered him a, a, a critical part of his body. But Foreman, having waited for this chance at the champ, he just couldn't stop himself. He just kept swinging and swinging and swinging, round after round, until later in the match when all of a sudden his punches weren't landing as hard. And his hands began to drop, and that's when Ali pounced and he finished off an exhausted Foreman. It was the rope dope. Ali used the ropes and Foreman played the dope. Hebrews chapter 2 tells us that on the cross, Jesus Christ waged war against the power of death and darkness. And you talk about a strategy that I wouldn't have thought of, but it had to be this way. Because Jesus came not only to offer us life, but in doing so to defeat the power of sin and death and darkness and racism and guilt and illness and injustice, you name it. And so instead of coming to earth and just start swinging, instead of coming to earth and blowing everyone away by his power, he instead went to the cross and he absorbed one blow after another. With every single strike of the whip, with every hammer that drove in the nail, with every blow to his face, he took everything that darkness and evil and death had to offer. He took it again and again and again. And when they had taken all their swings, he said, is that all you got? And then he moved on the offensive by absorbing death itself. What he proved on the cross is that love is more powerful than darkness or death. What he proved on the cross is that his love is more powerful than sin. What he proved is that you simply cannot empty him of his grace. You cannot get to the bottom of his mercy. You cannot find the end point of his love. What he proved is that he loves you with a love that you cannot comprehend, a love you cannot defeat, and a love that there's nothing this world can throw at you that it cannot conquer. Conquer. And here's the craziest thing of all. He's just getting started. Right? One of the most famous baseball games in history is Game 3 of the 1932 World Series. Because during this game against the Cubs at Wrigley Field, Babe Ruth came up to bat in the fifth inning and he did this. He pointed with his bat to the outfield stands. There are actual photographs of this. We know that he pointed. Right? And in that at bat, later in that bat, he hits a home run right in the direction of where he pointed. And so what happened is since then, legend has grown that what Babe Ruth was doing was actually calling his shot. He was telling everybody, I'm going to hit a home run. It's going to go right there. Now, there's some controversy to this, right? Because no one actually knows what he was doing. No one knows why he was pointing his bat or, or maybe it was just a still shot of the picture and he was just winding up. But there is no such ambiguity with Jesus. Because I want you to look at what he said in John chapter 10. This is Jesus talking before the cross, and he says this, the reason that my father loves me is that I laid down my life, only to take it up again. Listen to this. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down, right? I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down and the authority to take it up again. This command I received from my father. Do not miss this. Jesus is saying there, I've received an assignment, I received a command from my father, and I'm going to do it, and this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to lay down my life. That alone is strong enough. He's letting him know in advance, it's going to look like somebody else is in charge. It's going to look like someone else was killing me. You're going to think it's the soldiers in the cross and all that, but make no mistake, nobody takes my life from me. Nobody has that power. I'm giving up my own life because I'm in control. Only he doesn't stop there. Then he says, I also have the authority to take it up again, and I'm going to do that. He's calling his shot. 
He says, I'm going to die. I'm going to be in charge of the whole thing. And you'll know that I was in charge because afterwards I'll come back to life. Listen, any kook or nut job can think he's going to die and come back to life. Several cult leaders have believed this as well. Only one actually pulled it off. Only one actually came through and did it. And that was Jesus. And here is the wondrous, amazing payoff for those who believe in him after he did all that. Jesus says in John 11, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. Because that's what happened to him. He died and he lived. And so now when we die, we get to live. Because whoever lives by believing in me will never die. This is what he meant when he said that he is the life. What he means is that he's the one who created life. He's the one who couldn't stand it, that all human beings face death. So he's the one who came to die in your place to pay the price for your sins, and he's the one who defeated death by rising again. And so he is the one, and yes, the only one who can offer you life. Real, true, eternal life. Life that will carry on beyond the grave. And you might think, wait a minute, you actually believe this stuff? Well, yeah, I do. I really do. Because for one, I believe it on the testimony of the eyewitnesses. Did you know that Jesus, after his resurrection, appeared to over 500 people? And it was the basis of their account, their story, that helped fuel the spread of the church throughout the Roman Empire. And so when the early church, the early Christian church, came under persecution by the Jewish religious leaders in the Roman Empire, those wanting to destroy the church did a really smart thing. Their strategy is, let's go find the eyewitnesses. And so they found them. They hunted them down and found them. And they arrested them and they beat them and they tortured them and they killed them. And every step along the way they told them, all you got to do is change your story. All you have to do is recant. Just tell us. Tell us you made it up. And we're going to forget the whole thing and let you go. Because all they needed was one person to recant. And they could use that person as a propaganda machine to say the entire thing is a fraud. And you know what happened? They took the beatings. They took the torture. They died without ever changing their story. Because wouldn't you? I mean, if you saw a guy die, and then he's there with you alive and again, you're riding with him no matter what. I mean, the Roman Empire was legit. It had all kinds of power. They couldn't defeat death. But there's somebody who did. And if I'm, I'm on his team no matter what you throw at me. I believe on the account of the eyewitness. I also believe because of the life I see him give to people all around me. I believe because of the life he's given to me. Forgive me for a moment for making this personal. But in this line of work, you get called in when things aren't going well. And so I've seen it. I've seen people face terrifying illnesses. I've seen people face losing a child. I've seen people face losing a loved one. I've seen people deal with suicide. I've seen the worst that this world has to offer. And I've seen people face each and every one of those things with Jesus. And I've seen people face each and every one of those things without Jesus. And you will never, ever, ever convince me he isn't real. You will never, ever, ever convince me that he doesn't offer true life. You will never even begin to convince me that he's like anything else out there because I've seen it. It's why this place exists to point you to him. We're just not that impressed with ourselves, but we're blown away by Jesus. And we want you to know him. We want you to believe in him. We want you to trust him and find life in him. Because when it comes down to it, you are living for something this morning. 
You're trusting in something. You're worshiping something because that's the way you were designed. When you walked in those doors this morning, there is something that is shaping your life. There's something that is forming your priorities and setting your values. There's something that you're banking on this morning. And maybe for you it's Jesus. And maybe for you it's a religion. And maybe for you it's yourself. It's your resourcefulness. It's your strength. It's your wisdom, your ability. Darn it, I'm going to figure this out. I'm going I'm to get through this. Maybe it's money. Maybe it's success or pleasure. Maybe it's another person. Maybe it's an ideal. Maybe it's some sort of political affiliation. Shoot, maybe it's, maybe it's a band or an artist or a sports team. But there's something, there's someone that you are pursuing. There's someone that you're modeling your life after. There's something you're trusting. And what I want to ask you this morning, no, what I would need to ask you this morning is this. Is that really your final answer? Because there's a lot writing on this. More than you could ever know. And what I, what I want you to see is this. The Bible actually tells us. Did you know this? The Bible tells us what God's final answer is. Hebrews 1 tells us that in the past, God spoke through his prophets in many times, in many various ways. But in these last days, his final answer, he has spoken fully through his son, Jesus. And so if you were ever had to find yourself in a position to ask God, God, what is your final answer? He would tell you, it's Jesus. God, what's your answer to sin? It's Jesus. What's your answer for depression? It's Jesus. What's your answer for cancer, God? It's Jesus. What's your answer for abuse and oppression and, and racism? It's Jesus. What's your answer for grief, God? It's Jesus. What's your answer for genetic disorders? It's Jesus. What's your answer for death? It's Jesus. Because in Jesus, God has answered each and every one of them. In Jesus, God has defeated them all. Because in Jesus, sin and depression and cancer and abuse and oppression and racism do not get the final say. And Jesus, genetic disorders and divorce and broken relationships, and yes, even death itself are defeated. And it is a resounding defeat. And I want you to see what Jesus, and to close this one, I want you to see what Jesus buys for those who believe in him. I want you to see the hope and assurance that he gives them. Because in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul is a man who's a follower of Jesus. He's writing to a group of people he knows, a church that's in the city of Corinth. And towards the end of his letter, he starts to write about death. That sheet that covers all nation, the shroud that enfolds all people. And as he's writing, he can no longer contain himself. And this is what he writes. He writes, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, the power of sin and the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Do not miss that. That is Paul, a man, just a man like us, who's addressing the shroud that enfolds all people, the sheet that covers all nations. That's Paul talking about the one thing that has brought more grief and angst and loss and pain than anything else. That's Paul talking about the one thing we live our entire lives trying to avoid and not thinking about. It's Paul looking at death through the prism of what Jesus has taught him and saying, what do you even have, death? You've got nothing over me. You have no say over my life, no say over my family. You have nothing. You have been defeated forever. Let me ask you, can your God do that? Can your God do that? The thing that you're banking on when you walked in this morning, can he buy you that? Because Jesus can. Because Jesus Christ is the way. Jesus Christ is the truth. Jesus Christ is the life, and he is the only way. And he is the only truth, and he is the only life. 
He's the only one who came for you. He's the only one who died in your place. He's the only one who then defeated death for you. And he's the only one who has an answer for what you're facing. And if you haven't yet believed in him, if you haven't yet trusted in him, if you're banking this morning on something else, then again, I need to ask, is that your final answer? Is that really what you want to walk out of here with? I'm going to ask you all to just close your head and bow, bow your head and close your eyes for a minute. So I just want to talk for a moment, just really private and personal, no one else watching. I want to talk for a moment to those who've never, never made this decision, who walked in these doors this morning for who knows what reason. But when you came in, you were banking on something other than Jesus Christ. When you came in, your belief was not in him. But when you came in this morning, you could not say, yes, there is a time that I've surrendered my life to Jesus. I, I've asked him to forgive me of my sins. I've asked him to give me life. And every time Jesus taught, he brought people to a point of decision. I so feel led to do this today, to bring you to a point of decision. If you're here this morning and you've never given your life to Jesus and you want to do that right now, I'm going to ask you to make that decision. If you say, I, I want life. I want forgiveness, I want grace, I want life that never is. And I'm just going to ask you, if you're ready to believe in Jesus more, just slip your hand up right now. I see that hand. Thank you. I see that one. Thank you. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to pray here in a minute. And then uh, the, if you're facing the back of the sanctuary, if you go to the back left exit... Um, Travis, the one who read scriptures for this morning, he's going to be back there waiting for you. Um, he's going to share in the Bible what that means, what that looks like. He's going to talk to you uh, about that decision that you made today. And so after we pray, we're going to want to have everybody stand and sing. And as they do, well, I'm just going to ask you that raise your hands. Those of you who are ready to accept Jesus Christ, you just get up out of your seats and head toward the back. No one's going to look at you funny. No one's going to laugh at you. We're going to be happy for you. Okay. And then those that remain... Those who are, who, are, who, who are here today and saying that they have believed in Jesus, that they have trusted him for eternal life, that he has given you life, then why don't, why don't you just go ahead and worship like that's real this morning? The lunch can wait. Your kids in the nursery can wait. Just, just stay a minute and worship like that's actually true because it is. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that Jesus Christ came to offer us life. God, we thank you just for the love and the grace that he poured out to us on the cross. And we thank you most of all that he then defeated death forever. And so that when he stands before us and says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me, we know it's true. And so God, I pray for those who raised their hands this morning. I pray that, Lord, that you would move in their lives today. God, that you would sense their hearts of belief, that your Holy Spirit would come take up residence inside of them, that you would do exactly what your word says, that when we believe in you, you forgive us of our sins and you give us life. God, for the rest of us, those of us who have that already, who came in here alive in you, Lord, help us in this moment. Before we rush off to the rest of our days, before we move on, 
to just take this moment to express genuine heartfelt gratitude, genuine heartfelt excitement about what Jesus Christ has bought for us. We love you and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to stand now. If you raise your hand, go ahead and meet Travis at the back. The rest of you join us in the song.